good evening, afternoon, morning, middle of the night, depending on where you're calling in from. You're all so very welcome uh, to this second session of Mindfulness Frame by Frame with Mark Williams. Um, before I introduce Mark and hand over, as ever, I can see some of you are doing it already. It would be lovely if you could just put into chat where you're dialing in from today and also perhaps whether you are here for the first time or whether perhaps you were here last week for the session. You can see some of you are doing it and we're already over a thousand participants, which is very exciting. This is great. So you might want to just have a quick look. They're coming in very quickly. Just people from all over the world, probably every single continent. That's wonderful. So do keep on putting your location, your hellos. Um, and I'll just say a few words before I hand over. So first of all, you're all incredibly welcome. It's so lovely to, to have you here. And although we can't see each other, uh, and I'll say a little bit about that in, the moment, in a moment, you're, you're all so very welcome. So really do take a few moments um, to arrive just to land and settle wherever you are. Um, and just to say a few uh, bits of technical information really. Uh, because we're using a webinar format and we're, and we're doing that because um, just the sheer numbers of people attending this evening are so large, that this is the only format that will work for us. So apologies if you're used to these sessions where we can all see each other, it is a real shame but hopefully we get a sense of the community through um, these chats and you'll also be able to say goodbye to each other as well at the end. So I hope that's okay. Um, we are live, this is very much live uh, and the format will be as follows. So Mark will, will um, leave the session in a few moments and then there'll be an opportunity for questions and answers at the end, probably about 10, 15 minutes before the end. So Although you won't be able to use the chat during the session itself, you will have an opportunity to use the Q&A function to ask any questions you like. There'll be lots probably going by what happened last week, um, but we will try to group them as themes and answer as many as possible. Uh, and, and, and possibly if we, if we can't manage that, we may well add them on to the next session so we can address them then. Likewise, if you would like some help, <clears throat> whether you need a little bit of support or technical assistance, you can use the Q&A, but please make sure um, that you address it straight to the panelists um, so that we, the team here, the team of lovely mindfulness teachers and OMC teachers will be able to support you. The session is going to be recorded. And for those of you who were here last week, you should have received the link to last week's session and you will receive one again um, this coming week. So hopefully we'll have that done for you uh, in the next day or so. So just to, just to um, really take note of today's session, the title is The Pause, Befriending and Gathering the Scattered Minds. And when I realized that was the title for this week, uh, I did have a little ponder, a little think about this, this word mind and how it's so very common in everyday language. So I did a little bit of checking out, a little bit of searching, and I, and I found the following common phrases involving the word mind. 
So have a listen to this and see what you notice. Are you out of your mind? At the back of my mind? Make up your mind? Blow your mind? Cast your mind back? Caught in two minds? Change your mind? Comes to mind? Cross your mind? Lost my mind? And of course, on my mind or always on my mind, which was, I'm sure you know, was a very uh, popular pop song. Brenda Lee in 1972, Elvis Presley in the same year, Willie Nelson in 1982 and Pet Shop Boys in 1987. Just thought I'd put that one in there. But you'll notice how each of these phrases has a real energy to it. Uh, lots of action, lots of position. And really, it's a lovely um, reflection of just how active the mind can be and also how very scattered it can therefore feel. So with this, you know, it has its own power um, and we sometimes have quite a complex relationship with it. So with that in mind, uh, forgive the pun, I'm now going to hand over to Mark for tonight's session. So over to you, Mark. Thanks, Claire. Somebody just asked in the chat if you're on mute. Yes, everybody's on mute, so nobody can hear you or your cat. So let's just take a couple of minutes to sit and to feel our body on the chair or whatever position you're on. So letting your eyes close and coming to sit. And spending a few seconds, a few breaths even, with each of the anchors we explored last week. So maybe starting with the feet. What sensations do you notice when your attention is fully in your feet? And then taking a deeper breath and on the out breath, shifting your attention to the contact with the chair, the seat of the chair. And seeing if there are changing, fluxing sensations coming and going here. And taking a deeper breath and on the out breath, letting go of the contact with the seat and bringing attention to your hands. And then a deeper breath and on the out breath, letting go of the hands and coming to one place where you feel the breath moving in the body right now. And then for the last few moments, 
the body as a whole once again sitting here breathing. And then beginning to move fingers and toes and opening your eyes if they've been closed. So welcome again to this and thank you, Claire. And let's start with a brief recap and review of last week. We said last week that these eight sessions offer ways to explore new gateways into mindfulness and different views of the practice that might help free ourselves from the things that get us down in life. Our aim is to explore closely, frame by frame, the tipping points that show when we are becoming overwhelmed by things and driven to exhaustion. Last week we saw how the attention is hijacked and we become preoccupied by concerns when we're very tired. And when we feel like this, our attention suffers and our memory too. We have, may have problems in filtering, distracting information, and then problems in disengaging from these distractions. But there are other signs that come as well when we are overtired. We, we are self-critical, unaware, we're off balance, overreactive, fearful, and joyless. It can feel as if our mind is noisy and overcrowded, and we long for a new way of being. But we also saw that we can become so concerned to change what we are, that this just increases our sense of helplessness. So our aim was to explore how it would be to let go of trying to change the things about ourselves we don't like, but instead to turn on the light so that we could see what is going on. And from this clear seeing, this insight, more space, freedom and choice might be revealed, even in the midst of the exhaustion. So last week we explored those different anchors we've just been visiting, the contact of the feet on the ground, the contact with whatever we were sitting or lying on, and the hands too, as well as the breath in the body. And if you've had the chance to explore these possibilities since our last session, you may have found that one of these became your preferred anchor, or you may have even been surprised by which one you discovered was most helpful to you, may or may not have been what you expected. It's possible that, that you found that some combination was most helpful, perhaps noticing how it was best for you, for the feet or the hands or the seat to be in the foreground with the breath in the background or vice versa. This is your choice and for you to explore. There's no right or wrong. And it can be really interesting to start your practice with this day by day without taking for granted which anchor will be most helpful to, for you that day. So we explore these different anchors because, as we said, sometimes we need more options for when we want to ground ourselves, especially when the mind feels very restless and distracted. But the spirit in which we do this finding of our anchor is also important. That's going to become a major theme this week. I heard a story of a couple who just moved into a new house. It was on the edge of a wild moorland with great views. So they were very excited. 
they began to decorate the house and tidy up the garden, which was strewn with stones and weeds. They had plans for where the flower bed would go and where the vegetable patch would go, and they set about digging and clearing. And the biggest stone to clear was right in the middle of the place they planned for flowers. It would need both of them to shift it. But even when they put a spade dug down one side, it wouldn't budge, wouldn't move at all. They scraped away more earth and gradually saw that this stray stone, as they thought, was actually an outcrop of the moor, the rock on which their house was built on, on which they were now standing. They realized that if they were going to use this space, they were going to have to make a rock garden. Trying to change ourselves can be like trying to dig up that stone. We think that if we meditate hard enough or long enough, that we will get rid of the parts of ourselves we don't like. But what if the very thing we want to change is an inconvenient outcrop of a foundational aspect of the mind that we need to function effectively? Something that underneath is doing a lot of work for us. We'll come to other examples of this later on, but we already had an example last week when we focused on the way our attention is hijacked. We talked about being distracted by the flicker of a TV screen in the corner of the eye in a bar or cafe, or a looming object, or hearing your own name called across a crowded room. These examples of distraction from the outside show the importance of having, as part of the mind, a system that is sensitive to what goes on in the periphery. So even if we're focused on what's going on center stage, something in us is aware of what's going on around the edge of the stage. And it's part of the elegance of the mind and body that the brain which supports them is able to notice things in the periphery just in this way. And we mentioned a mechanism last week too, that the flicker of a TV screen or hearing your own name, they are regions of uncertainty and attention shifts in order to collect more data to resolve the uncertainty. And it turns out it's the same with our inner lives too. The same processes using the same algorithms you might say applies in our internal data streams. So much of what we think of as distractions arise from going over the past to plan the future, intended actions not yet completed, unfinished tasks, unclosed files. They are uncertain. So just like the flickers in the corner of our eye, attention switches towards them and has the effect of reminding us of them. And what's more, unfinished business is generally more uncertain than the sensations from your breath or your hands or your body. So there's a natural drift away. When this reminding process is working well, it helps us organize our lives. It keeps track of our plans, appointments we've made, medicines we need to take, projects to advance. Our attention needs to be able to be captured by other things because this helps to locate us to remind us where we are in place and time. If you have a friend or family with dementia, you know how terrifying it can be when the brain stops giving you these timely reminders and you lose a sense of where you are in the world. 
We may not like where our mind takes us when it keeps getting distracted by concerns, but the process underlying it can be respected and even celebrated because that process is doing important work for us every moment of the day. Why would it stop when we start to meditate? Finding good anchors for our attention is important. It helps to strengthen the attentional muscle so it can withstand the storms of anxiety or despair or, or exhaustion. But what if there are a way of reducing the intensity of the storms themselves? In mindfulness, we learn to do just this by changing our relationship with the very stuff that threatens to overwhelm us. What we can do to help build this new relationship is the theme this week. Before we come to this, let's take a breathing space. And again, as we did last week, feeling free to stand or stretch at this point if your body seems to need it and coming to sit when and if you, you wish to. But otherwise, let's take a breathing space. So finding a posture, standing or sitting or lying if you prefer, and noticing the posture, noticing the weather pattern in body and mind as we sit or stand or lie here. Noticing thoughts perhaps going through our mind. Maybe feelings, emotions. Sensations that come with them or, or just appear. Noticing perhaps some that we're drawn to, others we would prefer to push away. And as best we can, allowing things to be just as they are. And coming to the second step of the breathing space now, to the breath or to any one of the anchors you've been practicing with, feet on the floor, seat on the chair, hands, or your breath. If you're standing the feet on the floor, if you're lying the contact with the mat, or the breath. And then the third step, expanding the attention from your anchor to the body as a whole. And seeing if it's possible to really feel the spaciousness of the body, sitting, standing, lying here. All the sensations from the crown of the head to the bottom of your feet right out to the surface of the skin.
and as best we can, bringing this sense of spaciousness to the next few moments of our day. So allowing your eyes to open and taking the room again. The theme for week two is taking a pause, befriending and gathering the scattered mind. So let's explore how we might go about this. We'll start by seeing how recent research is giving us a new perspective, a new view on the mind's activity. Learning about the brain starts for many students of psychology, as it did for me, by learning about nerve impulses traveling through the body. You start by learning about what's called the reflex arc, the fact that if we touch a hot object, the muscles of the arm contract to remove the hand without the nerve single signal needing to go all the way to the brain. And starting by learning about this aspect of the nervous system is invaluable in helping understand how neurons and axons and synapses work, the structure of the peripheral and the central nervous system. But notice that it's all about stimuli and reaction to stimuli. The nerves do very little unless stimulated into action. And because peripheral nerves are passive, it was sort of assumed that the brain would also be passive unless stimulated into action. Curiously, although the past three or four decades have seen brain science revolutionized, scanning such as fMRI has become more and more efficient and valuable to understand the brain, this silent assumption of passivity that the brain waits until it receives a stimulus remained for a long time. And this was because the main interest of these experiments in the scanner was the processing that happens when a task, a stimulus is presented. You didn't hire expensive scanner time and then put people in the scanner, fold your arms and wait for the pictures to emerge. You have to get the participant to do something, some task, memory task, attention task, and all the control tasks you need to contrast it with to see where in the brain is lighting up. And then researchers notice something. Between tasks, when the participant was resting, the brain wasn't. It was still active. It seemed to slip into what was sort of almost casually called the default mode. But the default mode isn't like when you put your computer or TV into sleep mode. It turned out that even when you're resting between tasks, the brain was highly active with waves of activity in what then became known as the default mode network. This network continues working unless it is damped down by a task that demands more focused attention, at which point another network, helpfully called the task network or executive network, switches on. It had been the task network that most brain scientists were interested in until they started to see the significance of the default network. And they began to realize something really important, that the brain is like other organs of the body, like the heart and the lungs and the liver, always working. 
as neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett puts it in her wonderful book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Your brains, she says, your brain's 86 billion neurons never lie dormant waiting for a jump start. So what on earth is the default mode network actually doing in all this constant and unstinting activity? Well, the short answer is making predictions. It's looking for patterns and completing them through simulation, using information from both the distant and the recent past to build mental models of the world and what actions should be taken. So imagination, planning, mental inference, using memory of what's happened and even what might have happened, what's called counterfactuals, all of this is being used to generate future plans and to solve problems. And researchers have found, unsurprisingly, that when you are preoccupied by brooding and worrying, the default network is highly active. Why? Because brooding and worrying involves imagination, prediction in the service of possible action. Now, when this happens, it's hard for the alternative task network to come online and stay online. So that's why we, last week we began to explore coming back to our anchors to find our ground, whether the feet, seat, hands or breath. We're giving ourselves a task. And when you give yourself a task, it naturally and gently inhibits the default mode network. But we're now ready to take the second step to build a different relationship with the activity of the default mode, the material that would take your attention away. And we can cultivate this new relationship right inside the laboratory of our daily practice. Here's how. When we return to our anchor in meditation, it's easy to believe that what took us away, whether it's planning the future or remembering the past, is somehow the enemy. It's the stone that's in the wrong place in the garden and that meditation is designed to help you get rid of it, shift it. And if you can't get rid of it or shift it, you have failed. So we often hear someone say, I can't meditate. I tried it once. I'm hopeless at it. My mind keeps wandering. The truth is that even if we've practiced for some time, years, decades, and we know intellectually that the wandering mind is not a mistake or an enemy, we can still find ourselves sort of rushing back to the breath or flipping back quickly when the mind wanders. And the rushing back itself can carry the implicit message that something's gone wrong, that we've been caught out. Shh, don't tell. If you get back fast enough, no one will know you've been away. But what if it's not an enemy at all, but the very thing we need on which to practice? Here's another way to think of it. If we registered for gym membership, we'd be pretty annoyed to turn up and find an empty room. We'd want to know, where is all that fancy equipment that I paid for? Where's that thing you pull and the thing you push and the weights you lift and the thing you pedal? Now, is it possible to think of our minds like that? That if we had a clear and empty mind, it would be like walking into the empty gym, nothing to practice on. So when we meditate, we sit quietly and guess what? The gym equipment comes to us. 
a thought, an image, a memory, a plan, additions to the to-do list, impulses to check or send messages, daydreams, broodings, and worries. Mindfulness training is not a clever way to get rid of these. We need the mind's activity to practice on. The mind is doing what it does and it's doing the best it can. Not only that, but the mind is incredible at what it does. So maybe we could step back and say, ah, here is thinking, here is planning, here is daydreaming, and then wonder at its marvel. So we're not coming back to our anchors when our mind has wandered because a mistake has been made, but because by resetting to zero again and again, there's a chance to see it moving away again and again. And then by turning on a light at that very moment, we realize we've slipped anchor. We can see the mind at work and this seeing helps us stand back a little. We call it decentering this standing back and cultivating a different relationship with the mind based on befriending the mind, a relationship that turns out to be both the foundation and the fruit of insight. So the next step after meditating on the breath or some other focus for some time is to see the mind wandering not as an enemy or even an inconvenience, but rather as an opportunity, a chance to bring kindness or gratitude to it, even welcome it as a friend. The very thing we thought was the enemy turns out to be the means to help us train the mind and the heart. So last week, we learned to take up residence in one place, the hands, the breath, the feet, or the seat. This week, the challenge is to take up residence somewhere else, to bring the frame by frame attentiveness into the moment when you discover your mind isn't where you intended and reclaim that moment for your practice. Bring your practice right in to that moment. Bring your kindness right into that moment. Ah, here's mind wandering, here's daydreaming, whatever it is. When this happens, instead of rushing back to your focus, the invitation will be to help yourself by taking a deliberate pause, abiding here in that very moment, staying long enough to acknowledge where the mind has gone, and long enough also to bring kindness to the mind, perhaps even wonder and awe and gratitude for what it does for you. And then when you're ready, deliberately moving back slowly to where you had intended your attention to be focused, until the mind will go off again and there's another chance to practice befriending and gathering the scattered mind. So let's come to sit and practice the mind as it wanders and shepherding it back. Coming to sit. And bringing our attention first to the sense of the body sitting here. Contact of feet on the floor. The body on the chair.
hands on the lap. And knowing that at any point we can come back to, to this triangle of anchors, the feet and the seat and the hands. Coming to the breath. One place where you feel the breath moving now. And then expanding the attention to take in the body as a whole again, sitting here. And if you choose, you might like to take yourself through a body scan, maybe just spending one or two breaths with each region of the body. Starting perhaps with the feet, if you prefer to start at the top, that's fine too. Just one or two breaths with each major region of the body from the feet up or the head down, taking about a minute, minute and a half in your own time, breath by breath to visit each part of the body in turn. No right or wrong way to feel. As you move through the body, noticing whatever sensations are here when your attention arrives. You may notice pleasant or unpleasant, or they may be neither, just noticing that as well. Alive to it all as best you can.
And if and when you finish the scanning of the body, coming to the breath. Receiving the in-breath, letting go on the out-breath. Receiving, letting go. From time to time, you may find that the mind wanders away from where you had intended it to be. And when that happens, instead of coming back to the breath or your chosen focus immediately, taking a deliberate pause, noticing where the mind had gone, maybe even saying to yourself, ah, here is daydreaming, or ah, this is thinking or planning whatever, then taking just a moment, maybe a couple of breaths to, to wonder and marvel at the mind or cultivate gratitude for the mind. Some sense of kindness before then coming back slowly, back to where you'd intended the mind to be. If at any point things get overwhelming with too many thoughts or feelings, remembering you can always come back to your anchor at any time or opening your eyes, just dropping the guidance altogether. Deciding if you want to come back or just leave it for now.
checking in from time to time to see where your mind is. And if it's wandered away, an opportunity to notice where it's gone, acknowledging it, cultivating a sense of gratitude or wonder for the mind before slowly coming back. Doing this again and again and again. If we get completely lost in thought, sometimes we may automatically just flip back to the breath. So you could perhaps even slow down the coming back, perhaps going to the whole body and grounding yourself before coming into the focus. So you're coming back through the sense of being grounded here in the whole body before coming back to the particular focus, the breath or other anchors. And for the last few moments of this sitting, Coming back to the body as a whole, sitting here. This body breathing. Sensations in the body. And a sense of accepting this body just as it is. And a sense of accepting ourselves just as we are. already complete, already whole. So allowing the eyes to open if they closed and do whatever you need to stretch. Taking the room again. And we're going to have a, a short Q&A session now. 
So I'm going to hand over to, to Claire to coordinate that for us. Thank you, Claire. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, we've had some really interesting questions come in through the session. Maybe, maybe we'll start with um, a group of them really around the practices that people have been doing the home practice this week. And in particular questions about external anchors. Um, so in, in one case, somebody's been using external anchors because of a um, case of tinnitus and somebody else just finds internal anchors um, too uh, agitating. So just wanted to, to get your ideas on what you felt and what you felt about external anchors and how they can be used. Okay, external anchors like um, looking at around at, at things, sounds. Yeah, and, uh, outside uh, of the body. Outside of the body, so that's really helpful. Absolutely, thanks, it's a good question. Yes, please. I mean, um, feel free to use and explore whatever anchors work for you best. So it's really up to you to choose. And for many people that is likely to be something outside. It may be the sight of something, um, you know, some, some visual object. Um, traditionally, people have, have, have focused on an object, a bowl or a candle or something that is uh, able to hold their gaze and hold some interest. And that's the task. Remember, the intention here is to give yourself a task that damps down, naturally damps down without having to push away the default mode activity of the mind, all this imaginative stuff to actually focus on something, give yourself a task to do. And that can be outside or inside. And with tinnitus, that's interesting. I mean, because um, uh, somebody actually said during the week how um, tinnitus meant that they felt music was helpful for them or, or uh, sort of binaural sound, and that's fine too. Remember that there's no sense of prescription here. We are the number one experts on our own bodies and minds. So feel free to explore and, and notice what is happening here. We're giving ourselves a task and we're making the best chance we can at, um, at anchoring ourselves and then what we've done this week is saying, okay, we anchor ourselves so we have some place to come back to, but also we will be relating differently to the stuff that keep, comes in. That's great, thank you. Um, there are quite a few people asking about that actually. And then another one, a really interesting series of questions about telling the difference between something that can be sat with and should be sat with. Um, and something where you need to take other action. Um, I'm just going to read out one in particular. Um, how can we see a long-standing health difficulty for something not to change, like the rock in the middle of the garden that you mentioned? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, um, it's really hard. It's really hard. And it's, it's hard because it's easy to make this sort of guidance into a sort of platitude, into a sort of, oh, it'll be all right, just accept it. Um, what, we are, um, what we are saying here is that there are all sorts of things that can't be changed, at least now, and all sorts of ways in which the thing we can't change gets um, surrounded by thoughts and feelings and 
impulses which cling to that like limpets on a rock. And the thoughts are often things like, if I don't get rid of this, if I don't, if I don't get healthy again, I'll never enjoy my life again. There's no point. I won't enjoy my children, my grandchildren. I can't, all the things I can't do, I can't be happy, which there's the, the, the really horrible health issue, um, which is bad enough as it is, but often the way we react to it um, uh, means that the hopelessness and despair and the anger grow up around it. When we say turning on the light, we're saying if we turn on the light and, and we bring kindly awareness to the thing we can't change, we begin to see all the things that surround it and they become uncoupled. So we see the thoughts as thoughts, the feelings as feelings, the impulses as impulses, and below that, the intense and horrible sensations from the body maybe, um, the discomfort from the body. And it means that the, uh, the discomfort is no longer in the grip of this other reactivity. Now, it doesn't mean that, that something hasn't changed. Something radical has changed. And this was the initial discovery of John Kabat-Zinn when he, the first thing he did with people in chronic pain and health conditions was to, to do a body scan, which was to bring awareness to their bodies. And you think that seems absolutely crazy. How can bringing awareness to the body help people who are already over aware, too aware that their body's in pain? But he reasoned that actually the pain in the body was coming both from the bodily discomfort and from these reactions and bringing gentle cradling in awareness and not trying to desperately change it might actually produce a deeper transformation. Um, but I do realize that this as a counsel, I mean, you know, you get posters you can buy in shops that will tell you how to do this. And they're not very helpful because they just tell you, oh, accept it or, you know, enjoy the life you have and so on. So this takes the work and it's the practice and it's, it's very hard. It's very hard. And I really respect the courage that you have to keep going at, 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 this, at this practice. Thank you. Um, oh, now a, a sort of slightly more technical one. Do the default mode network and the direct experience network correspond to doing and being mode? If so, how come that the frantic, franticity falls into the DMN when it involves working on tasks, planning, etc.? Find it very confusing. Okay, so actually the truth is we don't really know yet, but um, there are tasks being planned by the default mode network but they are tasks as it were in the abstract. So it's unlike when you actually then engage in a task, like you actually uh, you know, look at something, uh, work something out. Um, it's what's happening in the default mode network is a lot of um, what seems to be self-related um, uh, activity about how you're going to work something out, what might this be like, um, and it's, it's often making predictions on the basis of what's happened. So there's a lot of sort of imagined action going on, which is gonna help you process the next few moments, but itself can easily spin off into uh, a mode that's unhelpful or a, um, 
are sort of just counterfactual. So for example, you know, if you've, if something's happened to you that's bad, the might have beens, uh, which this default mode network is very good at bringing up, um, they, they can be as, as worrying as the thing that has happened. You know, what, what if this and what if that? So although this is helpful in the long run, right, it's different from doing a task in which you just settle down, do the task, finish the task, the default mode ne network starts again. With, how does it relate to the doing mode? Well, the doing mode is not, a, is not a problem in a sense. The doing mode is about tasks. So the doing mode is really good for doing tasks. It's, it's, it's actually task related. So the doing mode in the scanner, when people have actually got a task to do, the doing mode is operating. You've got to remember the instructions. You've got to remember what you've got to do. Remember that the problem with the doing mode was not that it was a problem. It's when you actually used it to try to solve something that couldn't be solved by the doing mode. Yeah. And, and that would then spin you into a sort of hopelessness and despair. So the doing mode is not a problem, but when it becomes the driven mode, it tends to drive you to exhaustion because it's a sense of needing to do this now. Uh, it's very important. It gives you a sense of urgency and, um, and that urgency can, can just panic you and stress you out rather than see exactly what needs to be done. I don't know whether that's helpful, but that's, that would be what I'd say right now. It's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and then quite a few questions around uh, neurodiversity. So people who maybe suffer from ADHD or, or um, are on the autism spectrum, whose minds might be very scattered anyway, or very buzzy. Um, any advice on, uh, on, on this kind of work with, with those sorts of people, those, those difficulties? Yeah. Um, well, I'm not an expert on that, but those who do find that the fairly standard mindfulness practices can be helpful. You know, Susan Bergel's work in Amsterdam on ADHD and autism spectrum adolescence there and teaching the parents as well. That's critical actually, as, as Nirbhay Singh, he's the editor of the journal Mindfulness, you know, and he's done lots of work on mindfulness with uh, people with various, very severe uh, difficulty, learning difficulties or severe mental health problems. And he finds two things of interest. One is that the simple soles of the feet meditation is really helpful for people who have either a learning disability or ADHD or something that means that long instructions aren't particularly useful. And um, so I think just putting your, putting your um, attention in the soles of the feet and keeping it there and He's worked with people who have anger problems and his instructions to them is whenever you feel yourself getting, getting head up, just at that moment, put your attention in the soles of the feet until you feel things have changed a little. But the other thing that he really found which is useful is that by training the carer in mindfulness, the parent or the staff member in mindfulness, um, then those people they were looking after the amount of violent incidents and uh, overactivity in a in a in a in a way that wasn't helpful that 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 fell, even though they nobody actually treated or offered mindfulness to the the patient or the person being looked after. So the sense of so I think what Susan Bergel says train the parents as well as the adolescents, train the train the families as well as the as the person who's being presented as a problem, 
that itself can uh, be very transformative, I think. Yeah, great, thank you. And I, I'm just adding to that as well, that I know some people who work with these sorts of groups of young people do encourage them to do things like rock whilst they're practicing, because mm. it still allows for a sense of contact or connection or anchoring. Yeah, um, I think yeah. it's really helpful. Yeah, movement. Movement, movement. yeah. Really good. yeah. Great. I'm very aware that we've got three minutes left and I'm wondering, Mark, if there's anything homework-wise people need to do this right. week. Well, I think if people want to incorporate this sense of this different relationship with their mind wandering, so that this week I want you to really look out for mind wandering. You need mind wandering, okay? So really look. You might find it very ironic. Your mind might be cleared all of a sudden, but for now you need mind wandering. But also I wonder whether people could... Uh, just prioritize a different sense each day and during the day taking a pause during the day and maybe one day really tasting things on another day feeling another day seeing another day hearing so just go through the five major senses one a day and if during the day just perhaps make on a note on your diary or journal oh today is tasting or today is touching or today is seeing or today is hearing and see you may forget, but if you remember, just end that moment when you remember, just notice, just, and, you know, notice pleasant or unpleasant or somewhere in between. This is going to be next week, we're going to be moving towards really focusing on, on feeling tone, the sense of pleasant or unpleasant. And we can prepare for this by using our senses to, uh, to open to our senses and then just notice, ah, sensations ah pleasant ah unpleasant or somewhere in between and that would be a great preparation for our next next week's session thanks so much that's great um I'll over to you to finish off now please. yeah so i'll just just a couple of uh, one minute left so um i hope you've all enjoyed this evening everybody and um you will have access to the recording from this session. You should reach your email inbox. If for any reason it doesn't in the next couple of days, do check your junk folder. And if it's still not there, actually, I found out today, if you just go onto YouTube and type in um, frame by frame and the OMC or Mark Williams and frame by frame, you'll find them. So you should be able to revisit all this lovely, rich learning that way. So in our time-honoured fashion, please do feel free to say goodbye through chat in your own language. Um, and we will hopefully see you again next week. Thank you. And thank you, Mark, mm. for a really wonderful, rich session today. Thank you. Thank you.